When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello. <laughs> My name is Nina Patak. I produce the Still Processing podcast at the New York Times. And um, I want you to close your eyes. This is a special safety message from the California Emergency Management Agency. Stronger shaking could follow the earthquake that already hit our area. It's safer to stay off the road right now. But if you must drive and the shaking starts again, pull over and stop at the first open, safe place you can find. Avoid all underpasses, power lines, and overhanging signs. If stopped, stay inside your car. If driving on a bridge or an overpass, Carefully continue moving until you're off the bridge. Then look for a safe, open place to stop until the shaking passes. And stay tuned to this station for more Your feet hurt, so you sit down on the sidewalk. You've made it through downtown LA, past your favorite taco stand, crossed over the 110 freeway with abandoned cars everywhere. A woman touches your shoulder. Are you okay? I don't know, you say. A couple of buildings have caught fire down the street. Flames roaring, black smoke rising. The smell it here is terrible. Sewage and burning chemicals. No one seems to know what to do. Everyone's calling 911, but no one's getting through. You can hear fire trucks running across the city, but they're not close. The woman asks you, when will they send help? You shrug your shoulders. I don't know. This is a clip from episode two of The Big One, a podcast from KPCC about what to do when California gets hit by this giant earthquake that's going to hit in the next 30 years. Um, it's the brainchild of Arwen Champion Nix, who is here with us, and um, she is the director of podcasts at KPCC. And I wanted to ask you, like, you have interviews with experts like seismologists and structural engineers and people that know how buildings work and how the weather works and how climate change happens. And you have all this research and all this history and all this stuff, but then you also have a fiction. 
And that's the thing that I was really compelled by. Um, you speak to this you, and that you character is uh, someone with a wife and a kid um, who's trying to, trying to survive after disaster strikes. So I wanted to ask you why you chose to include a fiction in your story about disaster preparedness. Um, hi, everybody. Thanks for coming. Hi. We decided to include fiction because, well, a couple reasons. One, when we first came up with this idea for a show, uh, when I was like, I think we should make something on earthquakes after talking to our science reporter, my boss said that it was a terrible idea because we covered earthquakes and everyone knew everything in LA because we've all been through earthquakes and whatever. And I thought she was wrong. I thought that we didn't know everything. I didn't know. I didn't know that this was inevitable. I thought it was a maybe. And learning that day from our science reporter that this is going to happen terrified me and also really excited me at the idea that we could make an impact with making a show about earthquakes. But the challenge there, other than my boss thinking it was a terrible idea, was that it hadn't happened yet. So we had this tome of research that we were working with because in 2008, this, a seismologist who we feature heavily in the show got this group of hundreds of scientists and engineers and the whole list of people that you just mentioned together to talk about if our resilience, the city's resilience, if an, when an earthquake hits, what's going to happen. So knowing this tome of data existed helped us think about it, but it didn't help us talk about it because it hadn't happened yet. So how do you talk about something that hasn't happened? You tell a story. And I knew that I wanted to include a fiction element to the big one, but I think that it was, I was still kind of wavering on it until I interviewed this woman, uh, Dr. Sarah McBride, who's like my personal hero of the show. And she worked in like com communication about seismic risk in New Zealand for years. Like it was her job basically to do these road shows and make pamphlets and tell the people in New Zealand that earthquakes were going to happen, that it was inevitable. And so she did that for years. And then she left to like basically work in the New Zealand version of the Peace Corps. And uh, these the quakes hit in Christchurch. And what year was that again? I, yeah, it was around 2013 when those quakes hit. I don't remember exactly. But she flew back to the command center in Christchurch. And person after person came in and was like, how come nobody told us that this earthquake was going to happen? How come people didn't warn us? How come we didn't know better? And she was like, we did. I did. I've been telling you. It's my job to tell you. And I failed. And she was like simultaneously really regretful that she had failed people and also really mad that they weren't listening when she had been telling them. But classic scientist, instead of just like raging out, she raged out and then went back for another PhD in communication, um, which led her to write something called The Canterbury Tales, which is her thesis. It's a beautiful 700 pages that I highly recommend. <laughs> and it basically tracks her journey from when the earthquakes hit and studying communication and understanding that she had failed because all of the communication was so acronym heavy and like high concept or like really fear mongering, like prepare now or pay later. And so she realized at the end of her research that what she had failed to do was tell a story. And she said, if you want people to prepare, if you really want to have impact, which we did really want to have impact, because after we learned this was inevitable, we thought it was important to share that, we decided to include fiction. What about the argument that like 
you know, people have reported on earthquakes before. Like, how did you push back against that? Yeah, so when my boss was like, we've been doing this for 30 years as a station, like, everyone gets it. And it was like, well, what makes you assume we've been doing it right? And I, I mean, because I, you know, I've lived in L.A. three times. Like, we, and I think we do assume this in news, right? That we've been covering something the same way for a long time. But, like, are we living in a prison of someone else's decisions by doing that? Like, are we sure this is effective work, that it's impactful? So, like, super low-key, James Kim and Misha Youssef and I, who was the team at the time, we just went to the park one day, and we started asking people what they were afraid of. And people were afraid of losing their jobs. People were afraid of flying. People were afraid of a lot of things. But people were not thinking about earthquakes. And when we, as producers, engineered the conversation that way, it, we realized that people were paralyzed. And they didn't know where to start. And all of the co coverage we had done on like shakeout drills and what to do didn't work. People still thought you were supposed to get in a doorway. Don't get in a doorway if an earthquake hits. Bad idea. That's a myth. Um, and they went from, like, I just don't know where to start to should I get a gun really quickly? <laughs> Which, like, what we realized when people were saying that was, like, oh, they are paralyzed by fear and then they're afraid of their fellow man. And, like, that's also not what happens in a natural disaster. People are kind to each other. So through those conversations that we had, we realized what people needed and they needed a place to start. So it was important to us in like making the big one your survival guide that we give you some tips on what to do, but we knew those tips weren't going to stay with you unless you felt like a participant in this thing that was going to happen. I loved taking on the character of this protagonist with this wife, Layla, and a kid, Omar. Mm -hmm. um, and I was wondering how you came to decide who your character would be. Oh, that day. I think it was a Wednesday. No, I don't remember what day it was. Um, it was basically sitting with Misha, I believe, and just kind of looking at the demographics of the city and, like, what was the most, like, what was the median income? What was the median age? Where did people live? What was the average commute time? And using that data, we kind of came up with this fictional character and then utilized our reporter, Jacob, to kind of embody who we called our hero. Like, whenever we were in edits or working on this and working on the fiction part, we talked about the listener as our hero. Like, the person we wrote this for was the person listening, and you're the hero of the story because you decide to keep going. We didn't really talk about this in our, like, pre-interview sessions, but, uh, you know, um, like, someone like George Saunders really likes his characters, and you can tell that he has, like, great love for the, the fictional characters that he creates. Mm -hmm. um, whereas, like, some other writers, they put their characters through, like, horrible, horrible things, and you kind of maybe get the sense that they don't actually like the character that they've created. I feel like you've created this character with, like, so much care that, like, you, it's hard to not empathize with him. Thanks. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I just had that thought just now. Thank you. I mean, I do want to shout out Mary Knopf, who's here, who worked on the big one with me and is one of the most talented writers I've ever worked with, who helped with that. And Misha, who's not here, who, you know, as a team writing this and like with Jacob and our editor, Megan, one of the things that was really, really important to us was that every time we checked in with the character, there was a small or large moral dilemma mm -hmm. so that you had that conflict with it. Was it, you know, stealing a bottle of water because it's hot outside and machines are down or whatever it is? Like, and I think that like putting the character into those moral dilemmas helped us fall in love with the hero. Cool. 
Um, I was thinking about how in the big one, Arwen uses a fiction to help us talk about something that hasn't yet happened, but will. Um, and that got me thinking about our next clip, which uses a fiction to help us understand something that has happened and that is happening. Um, trigger warning, this is about child sexual assault, so do what you need to do to take care of yourself before I play the clip. Um, and I, before I play it, this is Zoha Zakai, whose piece this is. It's from her podcast, The Price of Secrecy and she's going to set it up. So if you could tell us a little bit about the characters and what we're going to hear. Hi, everyone. Really glad to see so many smiling faces. <laughs> um, so basically, the, uh, the story um, that this uh, clip is taken from is, is told through two episodes, and the clip that we're going to hear is from the beginning of the second sort of episode of the story. And the story is about um, a 15-year-old girl called Tannas from Tehran, Iran, um, and she calls out to the police claiming that uh, 18-year-old Sina, uh, who's um, her friend, has, has uh, raped, raped her, basically. Um, but where we, where we are at the story is where um, the, the kind of like the medical report has come back from the coroner's office, uh, uh, coroner report has come back, and they've basically denied um, any signs of um, sort of forced entry. Um, but the problem that they have raised is that 15-year-old Thanos is not also a, a virgin. Now, the context of the story where, you know, where we're based in Iran, any kind of sort of basically sexual um, uh, relationships out, outside the sort of like the... Um, legal wedlock is, is um, regarded as a crime. So uh, the turn of the story here is where we find that the victim, the 15-year-old uh, victim, is now um, at risk of actually being prosecuted because she it seem, because she's not a virgin and she's not married also. So this is this scene we will be hearing is a, a conversation, intimate conversation between Panos and her mom. And her mom is actually really our protagonist in the story, and she's trying to sort of really find out what has happened to her daughter in, in order to be able to um, help her. اون روزا تناز یه ذره دور بود نمیدونم حواسش یه جای دیگه بود میفهمیدم با حرفام ترسوندمش ولی واقعا چاره ای هم نداشتم باید میفهمیدم چی بهش گذشته اما هرچی بیشتر باهاش حرف میزدم نمیدونم انگاه دورتر میشد اینه یه ماهی که از آب بیفته بیرون میخوای نجاتش بدی اما هی از دستت لیست میخوره دستت چه یخ کرده چرا پتو رو رو خودت ننداختی دیگه چی میخوام بدونم اینکه از پس گرفتن شکایت مطمئنیم مگه تو بهشون نگفتی چرا عزیزم گفتم اما میخوان بدونن چرا ما یه دفعه نظرمون عوض کردیم خب چون کسی حرف من باور نکرد خب دلیل و مدرک میخوان باید میتونستیم ثابت بکنیم که نشد اینجوری هم شانسی نداریم من نمیدونستم اینجوری میشه چی بهشون میگیم حالا کاش از همون اول به خودم زنگ زده بودی اگه چیزی رو رود نشده نگفتی اشکال نداره به خدا برام مهم نیست چیکار کردی من کاری نکردم نه منظورم این نیست که تو مقصری پس چی؟ خب مامان من از دید اونا تو خودت اعتراف کردی به رابطه داشتن مخصوصا جواب ماینه میگه که خب دختر نبودی باید بتونیم یه توضیحی برای اینا بدیم 
من نمیدونستم نمیدونم چرا دختر نیستم مگه نرفتی پلیس بگی سینا بهت تجاوز کرده یعنی چی نمیدونستم دروغ نمیگم هیچی آدم نیست نمیدونم چرا باشه باشه عزیزم اشکالی نداره من نمیخوام کارا رو سخت کنم نمیخواستم اینجوری شه آروم باش درستش میکنم So it's really powerful. If you haven't listened yet, I highly recommend the series. It's called The Price of Secrecy. Um, I guess, Zoha, could you explain the project? Um, yeah, I mean, I'd tell you a little bit about how it came about. Um, it's been a passion project for a while, um, as, you know, the prevalency of this issue in Iran, like like a lot of places, is, is a lot. But the problem is that there, no one talks about it, and there's no system of support in place for anyone who wishes to kind of seek out help. Um, so I really was desperate to do something about this. And um, Can I pause you for a second? Sure. I just realized I didn't introduce you. Um, Zoha Zukai is a British-Iranian artist and academic who has a background in film and has been um, working in a lot of different mediums and decided for this particular project to try podcasting, um, which you'll get into in a moment. But I wanted to give that context before you launch into your <laughs> description. Um, so back in um, 2014, um, I attended a workshop which was about storytelling for social change, and that was when the seeds of this project started develop. I started, you know, developing the project, and the seed seed of it was so on. And um, in, initially, I was thinking of making an interactive on, uh, online drama, which I made a, a prototype for as well. But then I realized that I, I need um, a larger audience, and you know, that kind of interactive online drama has has kind of a limited audience, and that's where I kind of like thought about maybe podcasting would be the, uh, a better better way of uh, speaking to a larger numbers. And then I turned um, sort of my inquiry into a research question for a PhD course. And basically, the podcast is part of my um, PhD thesis. It's kind of like half of my, half of my PhD. And the, the subject matter of my PhD is um, looking at um, how do we use storytelling to address taboo and sensitive social issues. And I am looking at the um, basically the constraints, legal, social, familial, uh, cultural constraints that um, prevents people, you know, silences um, victims of child sexual abuse in Iran. And um, my practice-based PhD basically um, is a, a reflexive, socially engaged practice. And um, so, um, you, you know, and, and my main inquiry really through that sort of making this podcast and my research is about um, how, how do we find, how do we best tell the story of the pain of the other? And, and you know, there, you know, like telling the story of a pain of a trauma of, of, of the other, it comes, comes with a lot, can kind of come with a lot of problematics. And I think um, what I will be talking about um, in, you know, kind of following your, uh, your questions would be, I will be looking at addressing some of the problematics that I faced uh, and how I decided to sort of address them in this. Yeah, I guess one thing that I was hearing is like a, a lot of the interviews are done with actual psychologists and um, legal experts and people who um, are trained in various parts that um, that deal with child sexual assault, like various parts of culture that deal yeah. with it or yeah, of life. So but the but the actual like stories that you're that we just heard, for instance, is like it's. Scripted. It, it's scripted, yeah. and it's also, it's not a reenactment. It's an aggregation of all of the research that you've done um, with lots of different survivors of child sexual assault, correct? 
Um, well, basically, the, the, the method that I used uh, was that, yeah, I, um, we, I decided to collaborate with a network of professionals, and as you mentioned, psychiatrists, psychologists, social activists, lawyers who you know, in Iran work, work around this, this issue and work with the survivors. And with their help, um, I, I kind of collected some, some personal experiences anonymously, and then I scripted, you know, I brought these different stories together. You know, I had an agenda in my head as, as to what each story is, is kind of gonna, gonna fulfill the purpose of each story. And according to that, I brought different stories together, and then I made, I, I scripted the whole episode. And then I went, took the scripts back to the professionals that I was working with, and then we kind of had this back and forth conversation where we felt like, actually, this is much more closer to reality. We have to change this character, we have to change this scene. So there was like a, this back and, back and forth that was happening between. How did you yeah. cast for the, for the fiction part? Um, yeah, so um, I some only some of the people I use are actually trained um, voice actors, but the, the rest I I try to sort of like cast characters um, to, clo to closer to who I had in mind, and also like when I in the process of like working with the actors, I made sure that I bring them into the role as well. So again, another sort of like um, editing we had, we did for on the script was based on the, the actors we had. So I felt like actually this character would not, this person that is sitting in front of me, this doesn't make sense. She, she wouldn't act like this or say this. So we changed the script accordingly as well to try to really fit the characters within, within, you know, the actors within the characters in the story. Why did you choose a fiction over just doing a straight reenactment or actually having interviews with survivors themselves? Yeah, I mean, this um, using this sort of hybrid method of bringing fact and fiction together was um, not really a stylistic choice, but rather a choice that I had to make based on several ethical decisions that I had to make um, along the way in making this podcast. And one of them was that um, initially I had to ask myself whose stories will I have access to if I were to kind of interview victims of child sexual abuse. And, you know, in Iran, in, in the context of Iran, where no one really talks about these things, they, the only people who I would have access to their stories would be um, people who already live uh, precarious lives at the margins of society, you know, affected by other other sort of like social issues, like, for example, child laborers, runaway girls, you know, the, these were the stories that I would have easily access to, because they were their stories in a way were being used for, for other purposes also anyway. And I and I found that very problematic, because I felt like by, by taking their stories, I will be creating this other uh, out of the victim of child sexual abuse, who, who only belongs to a certain socioeconomic economic background, you know, I will kind of like, in a way, feed this wrong stereotype um, that already exists. And, and that's one of the reasons I decided to sort of stay away from uh, using victim stories. Um, and one of the other reasons that I was thinking was, um, again, because um, if I were to speak with people, this would be people who haven't really shared their stories out in the public. And I would be lucky if they had even like um, seeked, seeked out help in a way, if they could afford to seek out help or if they were in a position to be able to seek out help. So in a way, um, that process of me sitting down, taking their stories, reframing them in, in the podcast uh, in any way that I was going to retell it and then pass it on to an audience. Um, However, and Howard, even though that I would be using anonymization, but they would know that it's their story that I've taken and I've given to an audience. And to be honest with you, I wasn't sure if we can fully um, prevent the damage that that can, can cause when you lay yourself bare and you make yourself vulnerable for the first time with such a sort of traumatic story and how you know the feedback that my the, that the podcast might receive or the way I would frame their stories could be very kind of harmful you know could be re-victimize them in a way again um, so and, and also this is something that 
we talked about with, this, with the, one of the psychologists, and we decided to actually include that in the story, in the, one of the episodes where, for example, we talk about how um, it's important to share your story for the first time to, to, in a safe environment, for example. Um, and also, like, one last reason that I didn't want to take one person's story um, and retell it was because I wanted to sort of, like, stay away from um, this sort of, like, notion that I'm there to give a voice to the voiceless victim of child sexual abuse. Because, um, you know, this kind of, like, I, I have, like, problems with this sort of, like, neoliberal way of looking at, you know, like... Um, giving the responsibility of breaking the silence to the victim, you know, as though they haven't got enough to, <laughs> to deal with. So for me, like, what I try to sort of do, and I hope I've kind of come close to it, is to raise the question um, that why are we as a society not listening to them? You know, make it, make it a problem us, us failing to hear rather than them failing to speak out. <laughs> yeah. I, I love that you brought up ethics there. Um, I think that that's something that gets overlooked oftentimes when people are in pursuit of an interesting story. And so hearing you talk about how you're centering that at the and it's at the root of every choice that you're making in this project is really inspiring. And I think that we all can sort of um, hang on to that when we're trying to make things. I wanted to get to our last panelist, Sam. And I was thinking about how Zoha's piece uses a fiction to help us understand something that is happening now. And Sam, you said something really interesting on the phone. You said that your podcast, Bellwether, uses fiction to give us the fortitude to deal with the present. You might know Sam Greenspan from their work on 99% Invisible, but they've been up to a lot of things since then. And uh, we can get a little peek of that in this promo, I guess, for Bellwether. The future. Sounds nice, doesn't it? It was 2016, I was telling stories about the built environment, and the world was falling apart. The present was horrible. I found myself thinking a lot about the future. I quit my job, I moved to the desert, I started reading a lot of science fiction. One thing I love about sci-fi is that it is, at its heart, a medium of hope. That in the brightest utopias, there's a hope for a way that the world could be. And in the harshest dystopias, there's a hope that the world doesn't need to become this way. The future. Sounds nice, doesn't it? I wanted to find a way to bring this hope to journalism, to create a kind of speculative journalism, stories of the world as it is through the lens of what it might become. It was 2016, and I was done telling stories about the built world. It was time to tell stories of the world not yet built. I'm Sam Greenspan. This is Bellwether. Um... So the first episode is out, yeah? Mm -hmm. Yeah, actually, can, can I just first say thank you for being on this panel and also can we like a round of applause for still processing and Nina's work there? Because mm -hmm. I had a huge fan. Yeah. All right, well, I was waiting to do it the whole time. Um, what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> um, you have an episode out right now. I have an episode out, yeah. So, um, yeah, so it's sort of, oh man, it's been a really like long journey. Um, like last time I was, I, I missed last year's Third Coast, but the Third Coast before that, I was working on this too. Um, but yeah, I just, um, I mean, there's a few origin stories for the show. One is that, like I said, like I was just, the world felt totally upside down and and like I just, the, the way in which I had kind of conceived of it the last five, six years before that, thinking about the built environment, like nothing felt stable. And so like, how do you tell stories about the world when, like when, especially the built world, when it feels like it's becoming un, unbuilt. Um, and, um, and, 
and yeah, and I just, I mean, I mostly, I was just like super depressed. I mean, it wasn't, it, I mean, it was, um, 2016, I like, I actually like made a bunch of, um, like I got, I brought a button maker and made fuck 2016 buttons that I like gave out, um, for the end of the year. Um, but it's, I mean, yeah, there's also like the ghost ship fire in Oakland, which I, um, uh, was something that happened like right in the town that I was living in. It just felt like things were just really going off the rails and, um, really it just, started as a lot of escapism as just like I hadn't read science fiction or I mean I used to, I'd love sci-fi growing up I'd never really written any but um at least not any of those that got published but um I and I had spent so long you know I mean if anyone here is like works for a weekly show I mean or you know or daily show you know that like anything that you consume just like has to be in the service of the show because it's just it's such a like a twenty four seven job, and so every like piece of media that I consumed was always thinking about like how can I you know could this be a thing I could use for you know ninety percent invisible at the time or as an NPR before that, um, but um, but I was just like I need like I need like a sanity break and um, and it was and I and I remember I mean this isn't like a total shocker but it, and I just remembered like oh yeah like sci fi has always been a way to sort of like get a handle on the present. Um, and one of like I think the most um, instructive books to me that I read in that period, which I gave kind of like a visual shout out to in the in the trailer, that was the, for the Kickstarter video, um, was Colson Whitehead's The Underground Railroad, which is now being made into a, a TV show. I'm super excited about. Um, but um, I don't know if anyone's read it, but like the the premise of the book, like the the, the blurb you hear about it is like, oh, it's about like you know if the Underground Railroad to escape slavery was like a literal railroad moving underground. But like, spoiler alert, like the, the, the railroad is like 10 pages of the book. It's like really not a big piece at all. And it's sort of like, psych just made you read this really beautifully written compelling story that's about other things <laughs> otherwise completely believable, um, like escape from slavery story. And, love, a good, um, love a good psych. What's that? Love a good psych. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, and it's, I mean, it's a really, like, and I was just wondering like, I mean, I've never, you know, met Colson Whitehead, so I can't really ask him. But like, I, I and I wondered, like, was this, like, would it have gotten, you know, I think it was on like a Pulitzer or on Oprah's book list. I think like if it, if it was just the straight ahead, you know, um, historical nonfiction, because I think that there's just there's just something about like cleaving a little bit of distance away from what we know to be true that allows you to kind of just like take a sigh of relief and be like, all right, like we're not in our real world, so like what else might be possible? And I think it, and like so much of that book like is very like difficult stories that while fictional are, I mean, I, um, are based on like things that really happened. And, um, and knowing what I know about Colson Whitehead, I know he does like a ton of research when he, when he writes. And, and it, I felt like, like giving yourself the space, a little bit of space from, from reality lets you sort of like reconfigure your relationship to the present and think about like how, um, how we might like engage with it differently. And, and you're doing that right now in Bellwether. Right, yeah, trying anyway. I'm trying, yeah. I want to play the, a clip from the sure. first episode. It's uh, the first minute, and here it is. Bellwether. Episode one, autopilot off. Autonomous vehicles, moral crumble zones, Tempe, Arizona. Hey, hey there. We are uh, looking to buy uh, some flowers. This is... Uh, a roadside memorial, actually. A roadside memorial? Yeah. Do you have something you'd recommend for that? When they tell you she was crossing illegally, that she had been high on cannabis and meth, when they tell you she was homeless, remember, these are distractions. And these here oh, are wow. those spider moths. Those are really pretty. Mm -hmm. These are 
And when they tell you that the driver had done time for armed robbery, when they tell you the name of the TV show she was watching on her phone from behind the wheel of an autonomous car when it struck and killed a pedestrian, notice what's happening. These are red herrings. But let's take it from the top. The case we're talking about is the crash where the Uber test vehicle struck and killed a pedestrian just outside of Tempe, Arizona. Jennifer Morrison was, when we spoke, the investigator in charge. Okay, so this is one style that you hear in the show, which is research that you, you did reporting, clips from in the field. And then that is juxtaposed with what I'm about to play, which, Sam, could you set up? Uh, yeah, sure. So, so okay. Um, so my show... Bellwether from the early 21st century has been found in the future by a pair of data archaeologists, one human, one AI, and uh, who are sort of low-level government subcontractors um, trying to uh, eke out a living in the their, in the biggest city in America, uh, Phoenix, Arizona. Um, and uh, and so the first day on the job, this is what comes down the chute, and um, and so they're just getting acquainted with with the job, and uh, and they take a break. This has one of my favorite lines in the first episode. I wonder if y'all can guess what it is. We should be careful. It's easy to lose track of time in here. It's been 3.8 days. Messages from the moms are starting to pile up. They're going to try to copper wire us soon if we don't respond. Okay, you dictate. I'll read back. Dictation. Dear moms, sorry I've been hard to reach. We're fine. Just the last few days here in Phoenix have been... overwhelming. You can stop worrying. We did find a place to stay. And a job. We're doing gig work for the Cloudburst TNRC. My first job so far is combing through all these screen-age radio shows. Podcasts, they used to call them. Organizing them. Cataloging them. Flagging anything that seems especially important. Haven't found anything yet, and I'm not holding my breath. I got jokes. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, how did you... Um, there's such a blend of so many different like styles in this one episode. Can you just talk about sort of weaving those together? Yeah, I mean, it was a really slow, iterative process. I mean, like, I... You know, like, um, I mean, I'm just, I'm just hearing, like, Zoha's work for the first time and, and Arwen's work, I, you know, I, I, I heard when it came on... Um, uh, when I came on the podcast, I don't even say when I came on the radio, I don't know. Whenever it came out, I came on the internet, it hit the internet. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I imagine the process was, you're you know, hearing them talk about it now, it's, it's it's sort of similarly iterative process where it's just like, I, I knew I wanted to do something about the future and I tried like, am I in the future? Ta but that doesn't make sense. And like, am I... Um, like how like do I want to interview fake people but that seems weird and also like a thing I don't know how to do well um I mean I, I, yeah I mean like hybrid forms of documentary in which you make you know mockumentary is, is a really it's a disparaging term but I think it's actually can be a really great thing I just I just knew I didn't know how to do it um so I came up with this idea of like splitting apart the the fiction and the non and I try like I'm very clear on saying like I'm not blending whenever when everyone says like you're blending fact and fiction I'm always like very clear I'm like no I'm not I'm like telling a true story inside of a sci-fi radio serial. So, and the difference to me is that like um, the contract that I make with the listener is that every everything um, 
that I report is is true. Like it's a, it's as true as anything that I would tell for 99% Invisible or for NPR or whatever. Maybe more essayistic and a different voice, but but it's and and that's actually um, I realized when I was talking to some people um, about it earlier this week that like people were surprised by that. People thought it was all fiction, and um, and I love the idea that you can be su surprised in thinking that something is true rather than the sort of like uh, like resentment you feel when you think something is true and find out that it's fake maybe. Um, so it was just an iterative process, and I was, I was also living out, um, I, I got a chance to have a residency out in, in Joshua Tree, California, out in the desert in August, which was like, got above 100 degrees by uh, 8.30 in the morning, so I spent a lot of time indoors in the AC, and just sort of thinking about, like, in this landscape that, you know, is probably older than, you know, humans have been walking on two legs. Um, and, um, and just, yeah, thinking about, about time and, and, and the West and the desert and, um, and it, and reading a lot of sci-fi and and thinking about problems of AI and like what what is personhood and you know just like I, I it was just kind of this everything I've like ever thought was interesting into a blender and that's just kind of what I came up with. Cool. Um, I I was thinking you know you were bringing up Colson Whitehead and you're bringing up other mediums and I think we've all sort of drawn from other mediums when we're trying to make stuff. And um, I remember hearing an interview with Vince Gilligan where he was talking about writing Breaking Bad and how um, he used to write his characters into really tight corners. So um, he felt like he would up the stakes and up the tension when um, the corner that he was writing them into was really small. And um, as a result, that would propel these really like fantastic tales like over the course of the series. And I was curious, like in your either research or in you know, drawing inspiration, are there other, other things that you drew from where you were like, I got to steal that idea and apply it to my own thing and play it off as my own. Like in the big one specifically or ever? Um, I guess both. Whatever is going to be a more interesting answer. Okay, cool. <laughs> um, well, then I'll talk about television because it's my favorite thing to talk about. I, I love TV so much and I watch it because I'm obsessed with the structure and the story of it. And I think that I try and pull inspiration from that and... Like, I, like, unabashedly, y'all, I love TV. And I will talk to any of you about anything you've ever watched. I love it. But and, I, and movies, too. Didn't and you, movies, didn't too, you yeah. tweet uh, all of the lines of Thelma and Louise? I did, yeah. Yeah, during the, um, the Supreme Court or, like, nominee hearings, I was so fucking mad at how women were being treated. And... For some reason, my response to that was to buy tampons for everyone who bleeds at my work and to tweet every line to Thelma and Louise. But I, so I did that. Thank you. Thank you. So, but I think I'm drawing inspiration. For me, it's like my two main sources of inspiration are books on neuroscience and story and like when satisfaction point hits and dopamine hits, I love that stuff. I love that the MRIs people do when like you're consuming fiction or movies or whatever, that the part of your brain that lines, lights up is the part of participant, not observer. And I try and think about that when I'm making stories that like, if you are listening, if you are taking the time, giving my work your time, which is what it is, that you are a participant in it. So I try and think of that. And then also like, just general cinematic tips. Like I think we talk about stakes all the time and I think stakes can feel really daunting because it's a, another word for like, what's the important part of your story? And I think that I'd rather talk about like, 
Hitchcock's bomb theory because I think we... Wait, what's the bomb theory? So I'll tell you. Thanks for asking, <laughs> Sam. Uh, I think that, like... I don't think important and interesting need to be separated. I hate the idea that like, let's hide the broccoli. Let's just like make a better fucking dish. And like, that's what I want to do in writing and reporting and storytelling of all kinds. And bomb theory, I think is a really good example of that. So Hitchcock had this idea that if you have two people talking and a bomb explodes, you have eight seconds of tension. Like, the bomb explodes, there's aftermath, oh my God, what happened? But if you tell the viewer, if you plant the bomb, then you're just building tension. And he does this in Touch of Evil, and it's like four minutes that go by between like when this bomb is like literally planted in this car, and these two people are just walking down the street, and the car keeps going, and the woman is like, I hear this ticking, and then it explodes. So you have four minutes of tension. That's another way to think of stakes. And so I try and use those like cinematic elements to what I see and incorporate that. And so like I'm often like taking notes when I'm watching TV. I was just watching this like super good episode of The Walking Dead that had like the best cold open as far as like tension goes. And I was like, how can I use that framing in something? And I think, so yeah, TV is the answer. <laughs> and zombies. And, and zombies and stress and satisfaction. And I, I do love that brains. idea. Not what's going to happen when this character does something, but What's going to happen if this character doesn't do the thing? Exactly. You know, like, that what's that? Different. That's really what's at stake. A bomb is going to go off. Like, it's not just this idea of let's let's hide the stuff in there as if our listener is dumb. Our listener is not dumb. Our listener is our hero. Our listener is the person that we're striving to reach, and they should be respected as such. Yeah, I agree. Um, Wait, can I add a line about that? I think I think like. I mean, I, I mean, I came up in, you know, in the public radio world, and so much of what that is is about, like, you know, taking the listener and leading them by the hand and making sure they, you know, understand every bit of the story. And, like, and there is a lot to be said about that, because, like, the news is often very confusing, and you know, the under the pyramid, and you're sort of, like, general specific. And there's a whole, like, psychology and logic to that. But I think that, um, like, I think, I think listeners are often smarter than we give them credit for. Mm -hmm. And I think that they're, and, and one, like, argument that I make with my work is that, like, um, is that you can, is that there's like, there's a value in disorientation, right? And that you can, um, I think I told you on the phone, Nina, but there's this, there's this Brazilian artist named Tom Zay, who I really love, a uh, musician mostly. Um, he has an album called um, Explaining Things So I Can Confuse You, but I always like, I like inverting that and saying like, confusing you so I can explain things. Um, and that, you know, thinking about affect and thinking about like, um, the way a listener like, hear something or, or feel something and, 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 and what they'll bring to it too is that, you know, I think that people, I think like TV, like TV has gotten a lot smarter and I think people do show up for more subtle, less obvious kinds of things. I don't, oh yeah, please. Um, I was also thinking that, um, you know, with audio, because we don't have that sort of visual reference of a TV, you know, we, we allow for more imagination as well. So I think, you know, with, you know, just adding to what you were saying, it, it's kind of like we, I don't, yeah. Rather than explaining too much, we can let the imagination sort of also take people um, places. I don't know if it was effective, y'all can tell me, but I took that idea about confusion that you had brought up to me on the phone before, and um, that's kind of why the panel started how it did. <laughs> like, like, I'm not going to do intros, and I'm not going to tell you what the people do, or who I am, really. But instead, I'm just going to play this clip about a disaster, 
and see, you know, um, see if, yeah, you feel anything. So do y'all have other inspirations or other things? Thank you for that inspiration, I guess. Um, I know, Zoha, you had a few, a few outside influences that you were talking to me about before. Yeah, I mean, there's um, one festival in, um, in London called um, Frames of Representation that has been going for a few years. And um, it started, I think, as a documentary festival. Um, and a year after year, it became sort of the lines became blurry. And I, I think, you know, that it's not just framed as a documentary anymore. And I think I've seen quite a few pieces um, throughout the years in that festival, which has been very inspiring. But one particularly, which was like, um, helpful for, for my work was this um, film by um, Polish director Paul Lozinski called um, Have I Told You? Um, I, oh, you Never Know, you how, never much know how Much I Love You, Thank You. <laughs> um, which um, I'm not going to kind of like spoil it, but what, what it is basically just the film is uh, we, we are in a therapy session uh, with, a, with a therapist and a, a mother and daughter, and that's what the whole film is about, and it's just so powerful. Um, but the technique that is used, um, I, I don't want to spoil it, so I won't say what it is, but um, I definitely encourage people to watch it because um, that's sort of like playing with uh, expectations of what you, you see and you know, allowing um, characters sort of to um, bring so much of their own into the story is, is very, very powerful and ha make, ha makes it really like sort of like... Um, in, the impact is really high, basically. And I also like generally because of my work and where I come from, my work, um, I try to sort of take inspiration a lot from um, this sort of like his, um, sort of trend of social realism film uh, in Iran, particularly works of um, this director called Rahshan Maniyatamad, who, um, you know, works where, makes a lot of films um, about social issues. And one particular one was, um, is a fiction that she made uh, based in Iran, Iran's women's prison. Um, and, you know, I, I, I had the privilege of sitting down and talking to her about it. And she told me about how she spent uh, months going in and out of the prison and how she, she, she sort of developed these characters of the film through that experience of spending time with people rather than just taking one person's story again, you know, kind of creating this fiction. But the whole fiction was based out of her experience of people she met in prison. And, and yeah, that, that's kind of one of the influences I took from that. Yeah. I, I know a really, really, really small amount about like Iranian new wave film, and <laughs> and um, and one thing that I mean, please correct me if I'm wrong, but like that it's you know you, one a filmmaker can't always like say things literally um, because of the political climate, and so there's a lot of like encoding into symbolism, which you know like as a non-Iranian American, it's like maybe hard to follow. I have to like read about like what exactly this movie's about, but. Um, but it seems like that that's kind of like a thing, like it's a, it's an established practice, like within Iranian media around like, um, yeah, like what can you tell with symbols? What are like what are what are ways of of telling the truth without like telling it specifically? Mm. I don't know. Absolutely. Is yeah. that a thing? No, absolutely, yeah. Okay. yeah. <laughs> and some of the decisions I had to make for the podcast was because of like sort of trying to sort of be yeah clever and not to get in myself or anyone else into trouble. Um, particularly because of that, yeah. Yeah, can you talk about that a little bit more? Um, yeah, I mean, um, so so one of the th uh, things was that um, decisions I had to make um, was as a, as an as an outsider, basically, and an insider. You know, I grew up in Iran, um, but I kind of my my critical thinking was sort of shaped within the sort of like a Western institution, and and I think um, because I was going um, from outside Iran to Iran, working on a social issue within Iran. Um, you know, sort of apart from like this risk of um, in kind of like in, um, creating this sort of uh, or 
basically feeding this new colonial idea of um, that sort of like prioritizes or legitimizes sort of these Western notions of uh, suffering or rescue. You know, I also like um, had to sort of like um, be careful about you know how the work will be perceived if I if I kind of present myself as some as a, as an expert from the West coming to the rescue of the sort of like um, poor people in, in in the Middle East sort of thing. So um, one of the hybrid one of the reasons I used hybrid methodology was to sort of basically give myself this persona who is someone who's based in Iran, who lives amongst the character, who's one of the characters rather than... Um, but I mean, that, there were points of conflict that um, I, you know, I faced with the professionals that I worked with, because particularly because my way of thinking was framed uh, you know, outside Iran. But I, I tried to sort of include those um, in conversations within the within the with the characters in the podcast sort of thing, um, but um, one of the decisions I had to also you know as I said make I worked with professionals who were based in Iran and that was a very difficult decision to make um, because um, if it, it would have been much easier for me to to access the professionals in the diaspora, diaspora um, just because it would be easier to connect with and also they wouldn't be risking anything um, by taking part in in a work that it's not. With political with a capital B, but it, it is working on a social issue, so it can, it can be regarded um, um, sort of like politically problematic. Um, but uh, you know, but because I didn't want that sort of the voice of expert to come from the West, and I wanted to work with people in Iran, that means now I have to be very careful as to how I present the work. And you know, for example, I can't sort of like interview with. Um, you know, interview with sort of like certain channels or, you know, present the work through certain channels. Um, but also like in the way that I had to sort of tell the stories, a lot of things I had to sort of, yeah, sort of hide between sort of between the lines rather than just like just shout it out basically. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, can we get a round of applause for Sam Zohan? <laughs> Y'all are my heroes, and it's such an honor to inter like to have this panel. So I'm so 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 delighted. Um, the title of this panel is "Hearing Outside the Lines," and it's you know using fiction to tell even truer stories. I guess is one of the taglines for the panel. And I was thinking a lot about that, and thinking about tarot, and how everyone's doing it or has a friend that does it. Um, <laughs> And um, I have this one friend who's really, really into tarot, and she'll, you know, like, she believes in the power of the cards, and she'll take my hands, and she'll, you know, have me pull a card, and she'll tell me the story about, you know, she'll weave this narrative. And by listening to her, I usually think about something in my life or in the world with a different perspective, and sometimes I even learn something. I have another friend who's not into tarot. He's what you'd call um, a hater. And um, he, you know, he's like, no, it's, it's not real. Like, I, I'm not into it because it's not real. And I'm friends with them both. Lucky for me, it really doesn't matter to me whether or not it's real. I say this as someone that works at the New York Times. Uh, <laughs> but I, I do believe in fiction. Um, and I believe in the power of a story and taking us on a journey that helps us think about our lives or the world differently if for a moment. And I think there's so much value in that and hearing y'all, hearing how y'all are using that tool and helping us think of our lives in the world in a way that's a little bit different is so groundbreaking and I'm so grateful for it. So 
Thank you. Um, there's a clip from the big one that I just find really, really beautiful. And it's kind of about all the different ways that it can look like to be brave, uh, which is something that I think we need to figure out how to continue to do in journalism. And uh, yeah, it's from, do you remember what episode? I think it's four. Episode four, okay. And then we can get to Q&A. You're home, sitting outside, there's a warm breeze, smell of smoke. Omar's asleep in the tent, and you and Layla are drinking the only bottle of wine that didn't shatter. I was just freaking out. Tell her that she's not totally wrong, and that maybe you should get out of town sometime in the next couple weeks. Maybe stay with her family in Philly for a bit. quickly in the recovery effort in Southern California. The good news is that Governor Newsom approved sending in the National Guard. We've already seen a few emergency tents set up in some of the worst hit areas, but it's going to take a while to get supplies in to help everyone affected. Residents with structural damage to their homes will have additional shelters open up in the coming days as well. And eventually, they'll be able to get their $500 benefits for food and supplies from FEMA. We've seen that roads in and out of the region are blocked. Does that make things harder? You notice some broken glass in the corner of your dining room. You grab a broom, walk over, and start sweeping. It's so good. <laughs> if you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I think we're ready for Q&A, so if you want to... Hi, um, so I've been doing fiction uh, content, and I'm like, well, this year I stepped into nonfiction territory um, as a story scout for Spooked, which is in its third season. And so, like, comparing a lot, like, how do you structure 
a script in a fiction format? How do you structure an interview, perhaps like to pin down important like plot elements? For example, if you're going to use that tape on your final piece, or for example, like to inform a fictionalized dramatization of something that actually happened. Like, um, how do you structure the contents of real subjects into something that will turn into fiction or, or like to change its shape at the end? Okay, so one, so the, so the biggest revelation I had like in the last like six months is that um, like there are people um, who do this for a living. They're called fiction writers, um, and I'm not one of them. Um, I play one on the radio, um, but no, I, I like I think I think like collaboration is is really helpful and sort of like helping. Like I aspire to have like a writer the writer's room um, to like help with this stuff because it's it stretches the brain in a lot of. Uh, ways that, you know, are fun, but also, like, I think, you know, there are people who, like, think about story structure and, and f in a fictional context, like, for a living, but as far as the reporting goes, for me, I mean, I think, um, like, if, I think what the, the fiction does on my show, and as I'm, you know, still figuring it out, um, there are three more episodes that will be coming um, earlier, early 2020, but, um, the idea is that it's, like, a way of, it's, like, a way of encapsulating or putting a slant on, reporting that I've done that maybe I just can't do as a, as a reporter. So for instance, in the first episode, um, it's a lot about this idea about like, you know, what, what is described as the automation paradox, uh, which is that like as, um, as things get, as, as automation continues, um, it, things get generally get better except when they get way, way, way worse and people don't know why. Um, or the, 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 the disasters are more confusing. Um, and so what I did in, this, in the fiction part was that, um, is that I was able to use this backward glance from his, from like a fake future looking back at the present to say like, wait, there was this whole other track of like automation fear, like, like philosophy that we just aren't talking about right now, which is like, we're only thinking about technology and or automation in terms of, you know, a car that drives itself, right? Whereas there's this whole strain of, of, of thinkers who think that like the, the safest cars are ones um, where you, they have like they're called humans in the loop, right? Where that like the car is like, I'm gonna make a left turn right now. That sound okay to you? And you're like, yeah, sign off on that or whatever. And so you're sort of engaged, and you're kind of in a continuous conversation, which is sort of very much how like modern airplanes work, right? There's kind of this constant conversation between the machine and the human. And but I but because like it's companies like Uber, you know, or like who who um, who like they they like they're they're selling kind of like lifestyle, right? Um, and so what I was able to do is by living in the present in the future, they're like. Well, like what they weren't even talking about this whole idea about copilot AI, which is a thing that I made up. But like it's a whole like they weren't even talking about this. Like why, why not? And like that was a way of me saying, "Yo, guys, there's this whole other like way of thinking about this um, that I personally like think is probably a good thing to explore." But um, without getting too editorial about it in the present, because um, in one it would just be too opinionated, and two I think would be would just be boring um, uh, to have me like rant about. Technology. It's like you know, old man shaking his fist at the clouds, but um, but uh, or the cloud. Um, but um, <laughs> but uh, this is all a way of saying that like I think the reporting just comes in a way of like thinking about like creating the the, the universe in which you can unfold and having that like a, like a container or like a petri dish where you just sort of like put your your research into and like kind of just seeing seeing how they collide with each other. I mean, I'm curious about you know, the other you guys as well. Are you, I'm, I think I'm confused by the question. Um, are you saying how do we use fiction elements to help structure nonfiction interviews? Yeah, like the other way around. How do you structure uh, interviews in actual like tape in, to oh, inform? I totally misunderstood the question. Inform, 
and like to shape the narrative that you're shaping, even though it's fiction. And sometimes even uh, you can use that tape or... I yeah. think I understand. So I'm going to ask the question I think that is happening right now. And if I'm wrong, please re-ask again. Um, in, in the big one specifically, we interviewed so many, so many people. And the way we utilized the factual interviews, because the show itself is less than half fictional narrative. It's mostly interviews with experts talking about our resilience and the history of the San Andreas Fault and lots of other things. Um, and so what we did is we those interviews informed our fiction completely. Like all of the data and everything is what we built the fiction world in, understanding what would happen. And then we would build the story around it. So we would weave back and forth. We knew we wanted to, and a lot of that actually came from the pain points that were expressed that day in the park. Like people we're surprised to learn that an ambulance isn't going to stop for you because they're doing these things called windshield checks after a disaster because the communication is down and they have to physically check the city, which happens usually on motorcycles, sometimes on horseback, depending on what kind of roads work. So we would take this full, huge mass of information and work that into one line of the fiction to illustrate it. We also had sound design on our side. And then we would bring in the nonfiction interview in support, almost like, ha-ha, told you, like, kind of thing, <laughs> if that is helpful. I mean, the only uh, thing that I would add to that is that, um, for example, when I wanted to go to my factual you know, interviews with the professionals, I would first, like, I had an idea of what it is that I'm looking for in the fiction. And that really helped me, you know, kind of, like, narrow the, the interviews down. Because I think, you know, when you're kind of, talking about issues you can, I guess, talk about for, for hours. And, you know, that's going to be diff difficult later to cut. So what I did is, like, I knew exactly what it is that in, in fiction I'm trying to talk about. You know, I had an agenda. This is what I'm trying to achieve. This is the aim of this episode. And with that, I went to the interviews. And therefore, that, that made the interviews very sort of, like, to the point in a way. So it made my life easier to kind of use, um, if that helps. I think everyone thinks I've totally got the question wrong. Um, I do the exact opposite. I, I just do, I'm just, act, I'm just a reporter. I just act as a reporter and I'm like, get the information and then I don't even start writing the fiction until the reporting's like 80, 90% done. Like Sam in particular, what you were just talking about, like how do you set that up for the people you're interviewing and has it ever been a problem? Have you ever gotten any feedback? I, would, I, like, I, I no. do worry, I do worry because I'm reporting on like kind of serious stuff, right? Like um, uh, the first episode is, uh, sorry, the second episode will be about like um, invo involved the, the ghost ship fire. I mean, like it's there, there's like there's you know there's real stakes here. And the last thing I want is for anyone to feel like um, you know they were just a plot like a like a like a plot device in some sci-fi story, right? Um, it does worry me. I mean, I I I mean, it's also like been evolving a lot, and so I just kind of been telling people like, hey, like this is like for this show, um, I'm doing this thing called speculative journalism, where like this is sort of like there's going to be a fiction story that'll intersect with this. Um, and and sometimes I, I have asked people like what do you like foresee happening, but usually I don't use that that tape. Um, so a lot of like just trying to be kind to people and, and crossing fingers, and they'll ask me again in like three months. Um, so one thing that Arwen spoke to um, was that in telling a difficult story that people don't want to hear, one of the um, roadblocks to the woman in New Zealand was that her story was told from like a doom and gloom perspective. So, um, and, I, and I feel like the strains of doom and gloom coming through from all, maybe not just 
all of you, but everyone in the room <laughs> about the future. So how do you tell a fictional story and imagine a future um, fictionally and looking forward um, without presenting it as a doom and gloom story so that uh, you can actually engage an audience? How do you tell it in a way that's hopeful? Or engaging so that you don't disengage um, your audience by heralding the cry of... Um, yeah. Um, I think for us, one of the things that we did is we we only used the fiction element of it when it when we feel like it best served the listener. Um, it wasn't like we knew it was a, a weapon that we could overuse and we tried not to. But I think when we did use it, we were thinking very much of agency. And like it's called the big one, your survival guide, because we wanted people to survive this and we wanted people to get ready because that we realized they were so paralyzed with fear that they didn't know when to start like thinking about this massive earthquake that is going to kill more than 18,000 people burn down half of Los Angeles destroy our infrastructure in a way that we won't recover from for 10 or 20 years it's terrifying but there are things that you can do to prepare. And so we tried to weave in agency and use the fiction to say like this is what you'll be getting ready for, and then back it up with the experts, the nonfiction interviews, and then at the end of every episode, include tips that were free or cheap and easily accessible of things you could do easily to just start and feel like you had some agency in this inevitable disaster. And I think that for us, that's what kept it going and kept it from being too fear-mongery or doom and gloomy, was the fact that you had, there was something you could do that wouldn't be too much. Like, teach your child how to read a map and come up with a place where you can meet or have a bottle of water in your car and like a power bar, like little things that you could do. And honestly, like I think we really struggled with it being too scary, but we found that hundreds and hundreds of people wrote in saying that they acted after listening to it. And like we got invited by FEMA to go talk to the emergency managers at FEMA about storytelling and preparedness because they were like, we've been saying this for a long time. No one's listening. And we were like, story, it's the secret. So, um, so I think that like, it, it was a struggle, but I think with, I feel like with the big one more so than like climate change, it's, it's less of a struggle because there's no one to blame. The earth would do this no matter what, if we were here or not. So you don't feel guilty. And I think that with climate change, like that seems like a really, really hard thing to handle because there is that feeling of like, I did, I participated in this problem. And so I think it was a little easier for us than, than it could have been if it was a different subject. Yeah, also just character, right? I mean, it's interesting to hear the way that you were talking about like used, looking actually looking at demographic data to come up with your, with your characters. And like that's, yeah, I think that's just, a story is not like, it's about a specific character rather than or, or you know, or, or making that character you the listener rather than just like, every, this is every you know the the ten, the, the, the first person view instead of the ten thousand foot view. Yeah, I think it's also helpful. Right? Yeah, but also characters that are believable and like relatable, sort yeah. of like to to the audience. Yeah, I think I think the question that you asked is is my was my biggest dilemma, especially because I knew that I have to have a trigger warning at the beginning, and that's gonna kind of scare away a lot of people from um, listening to it. And I kind of how do I tell a story so that people listen to it not because it's about sexual abuse, but because it's a compelling story. And I think you know I try to use a lot of like sort of like you know. Um, 
fiction tools, which is like how do you, you know the, the story arc, you know um, cliffhangers, you know the, you know deep you know working with ca you know, deep character constructions and things things like that to sort of help. Yeah. Um, hello, uh, my question is mostly for Zoha, um, but any of you can answer. I just wonder. Um, if you heard from anyone who listened to the program and what impact did it have within Iran or elsewhere, um, and do, how do you think it being fictional helped that, or how would you have done it differently if, if not? Mm. I, it, the feedback um, luckily has been very positive. I was actually expecting that there would be some backlash, backlash, backlash to the work, but there wasn't. It's, it's been mainly positive, and people, um, I, I have people calling, um, contacting me wanting their stories to be shared in, in the same way. Um, but um, in terms of like, um, sorry, what was you, you asking that second question? Was Just, I wondered, well, firstly, did like any other victim say like, oh, this helped me understand my own experience? And then also, was it being fiction that helped them or not? Or not? Yeah, I, I think I think definitely like the pro the, the the fictionalizing made it, made it easier for people. You know, it, it was in a way um, holding holding the subject um, at a distance that was safe. You know, in a way, that fic fictionalization it, it meant that you know it was easier for them to listen to rather than knowing that this is a real person's story. In terms of how um, you know people protect themselves from hearing something that is very harmful, uh, very hurtful, and difficult to listen to. So that that, that feedback I had was like that the fiction made it easier, sort of to to engage um, with the work. And um, yeah, as, as I said, the impact has been positive um, in terms of people wanting to share and have, in, enter a conversation with me for further episodes. Wait, Arvin, you went to FEMA. <laughs> That's cool. Well, we went to Santa Rosa for a FEMA talk. That's yes. awesome. So impact. Impact, yeah. <laughs> we just won an emergency manager award, which is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I have a question for Zoha. Um, I was just wondering about your process of creating the dialogue in the fictional element. It, it came across as very... Um, real and um, I, I, I mean it's it's it seemed like just real dialogue that I could imagine I don't know it was, it was just very realistic and I um, I know there are people who are experts at dialogue who do this for a living but it seemed like you're coming from an academic background and from all these different places how did you achieve that kind of um, well, thank thank you. I'm really glad that you, um, that, you that you think that way. Actually, I don't. I, my acad uh, my background is not in academia. I am now, in, you know, doing the PhD was. Um, I was like, how do I find money to do, make this piece? And that's why I'm doing the PhD. So, um, I, I'm actually. I come from like sort of like a sort of like a visual storytelling background, film filmmaking. So, you know, I had sort of like some experience of writing dialogue and things like that. But I think with the, with the realisticness, the fact that it's kind of you felt that it's realistic was the process was really helpful. The fact that I took, you know, I worked on many drafts of the um, podcast, going back and forth with the professionals, but also I think when we when it came to the room where we were recording, um, I wanted the, the actors to put themselves in the story, and so a lot of the editing also happened there and then while we were recording, where or practicing, where I, you know, just tell, just tell, tell, you know, this is what's happening in the scene. Say what you what feels close to your heart, and I think that kind of helped a lot with um, dialogue. Hi, thank you. This has been really uh, informative. Um, uh, my question uh, has a little bit to do with uh, how you structure your stories. Um, so uh, most recently I've worked in journalism, kind of doing interview style type uh, stuff, um, but my background's in, in film production. 
And in narrative films, I was taught kind of uh, the Joseph Campbell way of the hero, where every uh, if you make it a film, it's every 15 minutes, there's a major plot point. And, and I've seen a lot of pushback um, that there are alternative ways of storytelling, and uh, particularly indigenous storytelling and, and stuff like that. And uh, it seems like you all have uh, attempted to kind of crack a code in, in terms of um, using alternate storytelling, right? You're not necessarily married to the to the parameters of of kind of traditional journalism, and and you have this broad kind of way that you can create a story in in whatever way you want. So how 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 often do you feel bounded by kind of traditional Western methods of storytelling and kind of feeding people little nuggets of like of like plot points, but also like the freedom to experiment with leading people along. And every morning I'm like, God, the confines of Western storytelling. <laughs> Just feel it all the time, you know? Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm a Westerner, so mm -hmm. probably I think it's my frame of reference. But um, I mean, the way that, the way that I, I mean, my show is still in formation, but the way that I, the way I think about doing what I do is like, um, it's like there's a there's a nonfiction story that I want to tell, and and it's and it's sort of like finding the ways that the that the fiction it's it's sort of like when does the I mean when do we need a break right like when when does um, when is like shit too real or when is when is just like it, you know like let's all go to the lobby moment right like um, and and I mean it sounds like it's comic relief exactly but there are moments um, you can hear in the first episode where. They're talking about stuff that has nothing to do with with what I'm talking about at all. They're just like, ah, mom killed me. He called us again. Um, and and so it's it's you know thinking. I mean, my training as a as a radio producer and radio journalist has like often been about like, you know, thinking about sound design as like advancing, you know, pushing the ball up the field and like you know. Um, but I'm I'm sort of thinking about like in addition to that, like what are the what's the what's like the visceral impact that this is having like on a listener right now and like what do what do they need to want to stick with this um, if it is like difficult information um, difficult in terms of like emotional content or just like data right um, and an argument and so um, so I think about like looking for moments where for me it starts with like what are the what are the pieces of the of the nonfiction part where I can see like this would be a moment for something to happen and then figuring out like what that is. So I don't know if that answers your question, but it's, I don't know. It's like, it is sort of elliptical or, or sort of like, like, like it's like a branching of a, of, of, a of a tree or plant. I mean, the only thing um, I would add to that, that for me was like, again, like um, making a strategic decision. If, if there were useful tools, I would use them. If not, I wouldn't be kind of feel like obliged to use them. So whatever kind of like help was helpful, basically. I allowed the sort of like the story or what it, what it was that I was hoping to achieve to direct the way, basically, rather than feeling confined by any kind of framework. Do you ever feel like you're like losing people, though, uh, in, in that experimentation? Um, yeah, I mean, yes. I mean, um, one thing I had to do for that when I had the first round of feedback was I had to cut down, cut the stories very short. And I think that, that also helped a lot. You know, that's kind of like, yeah. I think one last thing to add. I worked on a different show that no one listened to, where I didn't, I wasn't concerned with losing people. And it's one of my favorite things I've ever made that no one listened to. Um, I think it's uh, same, I use structure as a tool. And, you know, if I break the rule, it's a decision. Everything should just be a thoughtful decision, but I'm still learning. Can I take one second to give a shout out to something else, though? I just, if you do enjoy speculative 
journalism. There's another show called Flash Forward that just had its 100th episode that I just want to shout out because she's been doing... She's been, Rose has been doing this for a Rose long time. Ebleth. Rose Ebleth. And she's just such an incredible creator. And I love her work. All her work, anything she's ever done, you should listen to. But I just want to shout that out. But as far as structure, I think, like, use what you can. Learn more and, you know, challenge yourself and the listener. I think it's, it's good. But understand that, like, there are certain fatigue points. And so if you're going to push past them, like, just know that you're doing it. Hi, thank you. My name is uh, Sally Grace, and in college I took a class where we talked about the psychology of narration and how it does put you in a position of participation. And something that I've been thinking about, uh, especially in terms of how narration can also teach you new things about the world and have a perspective that you hadn't previously had. But we also live in a time where TV shows like 13 Reasons Why, or most recently, The Joker, or even Heath Ledger's portrayal of The Joker. There are different perspectives that people are finding very problematic. And even creating a space where people are participating, you know, in that narrative way with that. And I don't know, because it seems like a balance between not wanting to be thought police and create art, but also at the same time, how do you how do you all take that into consideration? And how do you, where, where is the place in that tension that you tend to inhabit? Yeah, I mean, I think like, and there's, I haven't, I haven't seen Joker, and I do really like The Dark Knight um, and Heath Ledger's portrayal there. But um, I think like, um, I mean, for me, it comes not in the fiction, but in the nonfiction. I mean, the, the nonfiction for me always comes first, right? It's, it's like, I don't even start thinking about the fiction until like, 80, 90% of the, of the reporting is done. Um, and it's just like, and I'm just trying to take like the radical stance as a reporter in my nonfiction that like fascism is not okay. And like, um, and like racism is not okay. And like sexism, homophobia, transphobia, like classism. It's just like, it's just, let's just like not pretend that there's two sides to this. And um, also like <laughs> sort of like what, what what I think I can get away with because I'm doing this like speculative journalism thing is that it, it's a little bit of like look at the birdie over here because like by doing this like really out there wacky thing, I can like say things as a journalist. Like I can kind of like stretch my range by just sort of like, um, yeah, say it's like fucked up that the media was like uh, outing the, the Uber driver as like a trans woman and like, um, and like just yeah just t just take issue and and the second episode of the show will be like about the, the ghost ship fire in Oakland and specifically about the um the uh like at attack that alt-right trolls mounted on um on uh DIY spaces and, and try to get a bunch of like art spaces across North America shut down which really happened and is still happening um but yeah it's just by saying like okay like as you know I'm a reporter and I'm being you know like uh, skeptical and and nuanced and and fair as a reporter, but like also like yeah, getting spaces like shut down through government bureaucracy because you hate their point of view is like not is not okay. And like I'm just I'm not going to pretend that it's not for as a reporter. So I, mean, I don't know if I would have an answer to that, but I think that was certainly one of the challenges I faced because I felt like. Um, there were a lot of points that I felt like I need to censor myself for the work to sort of be able to have the audience that I wanted to have. 
and I think you know at at that point when I reached that point of like kind of that dilemma I how I kind of tried to see the work was that what do I hope to achieve from this and somehow like trying to sort of like be okay with the fact that maybe, okay, I don't like censorship because that's sort of like, but maybe this is something that I have to strategically do now and I have to be okay with it, but I have to be mindful that this is what I'm doing. Um, so I, I think, you know, for me it was like what, yeah, thinking about what it is that I want this work specifically to do, not generally, in, and it's not something that I can maybe apply to other works, but it just main, meant that it worked for this one, for example, yeah. That's I mean, I think it's a great, question and point. It's something that I think I also struggle with in work, even, you know, whether it's a blend of fiction and nonfiction or other things. I think, you know, as journalists, we're trained to fact check. And I think it's also important to intention check. Like, what are we doing? What is our perspective? And what is the potential consequence of this? And just be incredibly thoughtful about it. I think, you know, you bring up 13 reasons why I did a lot of reporting on like suicidality and stuff. And it was some of the hardest work I, I did because communicating anything around that is just really mired in a lot of potential consequence. And is it actually helpful? And I mean, I have no solution, but I do think that like an active willingness and reminder to like check yourself is really important um, with both perspective, consequence and privilege. I think that's also the work like it's being willing to continually ask yourself those questions like that is the work and being willing to put yourself in that space of discomfort um, in service of ethics and in service of doing no harm I think is really important. I'm Hannah and I work on Invisibilia and I'm so happy for this panel because I, thank you I want to say that I as a consumer I love the blend between fact and fiction. If it's an audio, if it's written, I just love it. But as a journalist, I can't totally get there. Like, I feel like we did it once, semi-successfully, and like, I just can't, and I, as you guys are talking, I'm trying to figure out why I can't totally get there. And I think one is like, you know, am I, like, I feel like there's so many questions I haven't answered for myself if I do it. Like, am I still a journalist? Like, I, I consume, as a consumer of fiction and nonfiction, totally different. Like I don't have any, when I'm thinking about fiction or listening to it, I don't have any kind of barriers to my, it's like my vigilance drops in a certain way and I'm not sure if that's okay as a journalist to do that to the listener. And, and then the second objection I have is the opposite, which is, am I being totally naive? Like actual fiction for 500 years has been teaching us about the present in fiction form forever. So like, who am I to think? Because I sprinkle a little bit of fiction in my nonfiction that I'm doing some big radical act, right? Doesn't isn't that what fiction is? And I guess my last one was like, I, the world is disturbingly in that direction now. Like generally, politically, we hate that. So if, if artistically we embrace that, then what? Like, what are we saying? We're saying, okay, like, we're fighting fair, fair, or, like, we think it's okay, that's just the world we live in now, where fact and fiction is blended, and so, cool, we're just gonna go right along with you now and do it our own way. I just feel like I have a lot of things that I haven't worked out about the method, though I totally love it as a consumer. I feel like, 
In the big one, I I don't I'm not sure if this was successful or not, but for me it was really important to sonically signpost the switch. And you know, when we in the very beginning, the first word is imagine. Like we're setting you up to be like, this is not real. Imagine it, you know? It's good. build it in your brain. Never happened. This earthquake doesn't exist yet. But like then we use the nonfiction interviews to like support or expand on these things in the fiction. But for me, sonically, I had uh, certain like stems and scoring that I would use in my sound design that switched back and forth that would signal it that for me were really important to have even if they weren't like saying and now we go back to the fiction part of the story like to just switch and keep those worlds separate for that reason like for me I was using a fiction as a tool to report on something that hasn't happened yet but I think that um, it was it was scary to do, and I did struggle with that same kind of thing. In in also in making sure that I didn't, um, I, I never wanted our listener, who we referred to as our hero because of the perspective that the story is written in, I never wanted our hero to feel like they were being tricked. You know, like I wanted them to be, I wanted them to have agency in listening as well. And so I did everything I could to signpost that in the narrative. I'm all for like confusion. And like catching up and respecting the listener, but I, I didn't want to. I didn't want to. No trickery in in the show for me. Um, for me, like I, I don't have a journalism background, so I wasn't. You know, I, I'm a storyteller. I can do whatever I like in a sense. <laughs> 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 um, but I think um, what you uh, what you mentioned about this sort of post truth era that we are in, and I think that was one of the things that I thought about. That you know, by not kind of telling true stories, am I kind of saying that, you know, we don't, we don't care about the truth? And I think my reaction was like the opposite. Is I'm not saying that, you know, by not telling truthful stories, I'm not saying that the truth doesn't matter because it very much matters. But I think for me, the intention was to try and to sort of um, say that maybe the question that whether if this is the true story or not true story, if this person is lying, if they're not lying, that's not, that's not the right way of looking at this. We need to think about it differently. For example, with my case, we don't need to think about if this victim is like, you know, breaking the silence, are they telling the truth? But we need to ask, like, are we as a society ready to hear them, for example? You know, like kind of changing the perspective. And that's why I think it was useful for me, that sort of thing. Especially because in your, I mean, in your, in your work, like the idea of the truth is so much problematic and that's like kind of the very basis of the clip that we saw. Um, I'm super appreciative of your question, Hannah. I did a, I did a Reddit AMA um, a while ago for my show and like this is like, people are like, this is fake news, this is terrible. And they listen to it and they're like, oh, I think I get what you're doing. Um, but um, <clears throat> for me, like, I, I, think, I think you're right. And I, and I, I think it's, I think it's super important to draw bright lines between fact and fiction, and um, and I, uh, the contract that I make with the listener, even if it's not spoken out loud, is that like everything that I, Sam Greenspan, report on the show is as true as anything I would report for 90% Invisible or NPR or Invisibilia, if you wanted to have me some time over. Um, <laughs> but um, but like so that's that's that I consider journalism, and and then there's like obvious you know tosses about what's you know, what's what's obviously fiction, right? The cloudburst, the PM, PM, the, you know, the, like, AIs and sentience and all that stuff. Like, it's clear, clearly fiction. And so I, I say that I don't blend fact and fiction. I say that it is a um, not narrative nonfiction podcast inside of a sci-fi radio serial. Um, and so one is a container for the other. And it's the, and it's the sci-fi exists as... Um, 
yeah, like as as a vehicle, like as a chassis for the for the nonfiction, and and I and I, and it's super important for me because I'm reporting on difficult topics with like people with real consequences for people that like I never want anyone to feel like their real story is just like a plot device for some fiction that I'm making up, and so I do I do think that like um, I do think that like journalists we have a tendency to be a little, little bit like precious about like the truth, but um, but I also think that that sense of like, you know, integrity and, and shaping of our, of our cr- creativity and imagination is really important to sort of make sure that we stay honest. So, yeah. Mine's just going to expand on, on that question, I guess. Are you ever explicitly um, like communicating where the fact and fiction is, is blending to your audience? I, I struggle with this and especially in a cultural context, um, my name's Martina, and I was um, the sound designer of Radio Ambulante for a long time. And I remember one of the comments that we would get, because this was the first narrative journalism podcast in Latin America in Spanish, that we would be congratulated for doing such a great job, and how did we get such great actors? And I was like, oh, no, 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 this is real. These are true stories. But we, And I, as a sound designer, had so much like uh, angst about this, because... We we, ne- we never went into the field on some stories, and on some stories, we did. And I wanted to be able to communicate that to our audience, and I almost wanted to put it in the credits, you know, like, okay, of what you just heard, <laughs> this was real, we were there, <laughs> the other stuff, sound library, you know, and, and, I, and it wasn't very crafty to do it, so I never did, but I always wanted to. And I wonder, now I'm also debating on making something that is blending fact and fiction, how and I'm wrestling with this idea. How am I going to communicate to my audience like these are true stories that are influencing characters, or this is to sound design. This was recorded. You know, I don't know. Curious how you landed on whether you explicitly explained it or or not. Martina, can I ask Thanks. you? I have a question. Can I ask you like when you, when you told people when when people were like, oh, great actors, and you're like, actually, this is real. Like, I'm curious. Like, what was their response? Were they delighted were they angry like what was how did they take that you know it was on the internet so i'm i I can't know but i'm I'm assuming they were happy they still continue to listen and support the show so i'm hoping that they were happy about it yeah because i i mean i think like um i i've encountered that a lot too where people like think that the that my reporting is is fiction also and um i find that i actually don't mind it so much i mean i never i like the bright line for me is like i never want to have anyone think something is true that's not, but if they're not sure if it's true and then they're like, see it on the internet later, like, oh wow, this really did happen. Like, I think that's kind of neat. And I think that like we as journalists like hit people over the head, we're like, this is really happening. And it's like, there's something powerful to putting the information out there and being like, you know, no, like doing the work of a journalist, but being like, you know, that that they'll, that it, I don't know. I, I, I feel I'm still on the fence about this, but I'm curious what you guys think. If, I think in the big one, we didn't really get any of that feedback if, because I think, you know, in this opt-in medium, you're like getting into this context and you're set up for it. The only time that we experienced something kind of, kind of like that was when an excerpt was played on the radio and, um, it was a, it's a kind of scary show and a kind of scary part was played on the radio and it was like four minutes long and we got so many emails and so many people like being like, this was terrifying. How could you do this? This is so irresponsible. This is War of the Worlds, like that kind of thing. And I was like, told y'all not to play it. But like, <laughs> um, but I think that for us, it was like in the, like, 
the medium I was working in was the medium I was focused on. And for us, we didn't, I, I wish I had like some sort of answer, but we didn't find confusion in those, those lines from our listeners. They, it seemed very clear. Um, and for, for my project, I think I, I liked that kind of confusion because that meant that um, it's the beginning of a good conversation. So I purposefully, there's this kind of the line is not clear, although the one thing is that the professionals whose voices we hear in the podcast are real professionals, so people can kind of look them up and they find out their real voices. But apart from that, everything else is blurry just for as, as a purpose of like, if people come and ask me, that means that I can kind of come back to them with conversation and, you know, opening up this kind of question, world of questioning, yeah. I think we're at time. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you, Arwen and Zoha and Sam. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.